This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my uh, co-host and long-term friend, Todd Pruitt. Way, too long, way too long. We need to break up sometimes. So we need to fall out and sue each other yeah. over something. It's the American way, it is. after all. Uh, my long-term friend, Todd Pruitt, he is uh, a pastor in which denomination is the PCA. It? The PCA, that's the uh-huh. one. I thought you were a Presbyterian. Well, uh, we're we're trying to 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 attain that status. We okay. keep working at it. Yeah, you have this weird general assembly where you can literally you can stack the deck by buying uh, seats and votes. Is that uh, correct? That, that is absolutely incorrect. You are a slanderous scoundrel. <laughs> um, uh, uh, no, no, of course not. Uh, it, it's highly parliamentary, and uh, but it's not delegated as it, a true Presbyterian it, general it is, assembly would. Well, you know, people. We have some committees, but uh, we also vote on a number of things. Uh, the whole assembly together. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. I, I understand, Carl, because uh, uh, kind of micro denominations that you're a part of. Uh, you, we, you we, a, we, I think of them as boutique denominations. Uh, boutique actually. denominations, yes, so. exactly. You, you have a hard time relating to that. So. Well, craft denominations, <laughs> we could call them. So. Well, it's great to have you all with us, and it's a particular pleasure to have a friend of ours uh, uh, on the show today. His name is uh, Stephen Doobie. He's the Associate Professor of Theology at Phoenix Seminary. Uh, He's the author of a number of books that uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed, uh, and I have to say have helped refine my thinking on some very significant theological matters. Uh, God in Himself, Scripture Metaphysics and the Task of Theology, and his earlier work, which I I think I'm right in saying was a a revision of his doctoral dissertation, uh, Divine Simplicity, a Dogmatic Account, which is a superb exposition and defense of the classical doctrine of divine simplicity. And he's here today to discuss his latest book, which is, it is a major and substantial contribution to theological literature. Uh, it has some excellent commendations. My old friend, Ian McFarland uh, of Candler School of Theology, uh, endorsed it. Fred Sanders, uh, Bruce Marshall, uh, a number of very, very significant theologians put their imprimatur on this book. The title is Jesus and the God of Classical Theism. Biblical Christology in Light of the Doctrine of God. Steve, it's great to have you on the show. 
Thanks for having me. This is, after all, the summit of the podcasting world. Uh, it ah. is. It is. <laughs> the sad thing for you is it's all downhill from now on. You know, you're going to have that like post-Olympic gold medal depression. After yeah, this. something so. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, maybe we could kick off by uh, defining, for some of our listeners may not be familiar with the term classical theism. Uh, and you spend a certain time at the start of the book very helpfully reflecting on what exactly theologians mean when they talk about classical theism. I know it's a tall order to ask you to to you know define it for us in thirty seconds, but could you offer a a, a concise uh, definition of what classical theism is and and how it's distinctive compared to some of the other views of God that may circulate within the, the broader evangelical or Christian world? Yeah, I would say that it's a, a phrase that's used to refer to a view of God that emphasizes certain divine attributes. Uh, that list would include attributes like aseity, immutability, impassibility, eternity in the sense of God's transcending time, and simplicity as well. Each of those terms warrants a definition by itself. But I'll just start by saying that it's a view of God that's typically held to uh, to emphasize, prioritize attributes like that. Um, that could be contrasted with uh, a number of other views out there, um, including ones that might um, deny, for example, that God is impassable or God is simple. And you can find views like that, not only in more left-leaning theologies, but you could find views like that represented in the world of evangelicalism. And in the book, I tried to acknowledge that it's an imprecise phrase and there, there really is not one person in charge of determining what counts as a representation of classical theism. Furthermore, there are different people that, uh, th there, are, there are different kinds of baggage that people can bring to the table when they think of that phrase. So I personally don't have any interest in defending the phrase or using it for constructive purposes. My goal in using a phrase is simply to alert the reader about what the sort of discussion is that's taking place in the book or what is the subject matter. And then I would prefer to not rely heavily on the phrase and really jump into concrete, substantive discussions about the meaning of things like aseity or how Christology fits with divine immutability and so forth. So I'm, I'm willing to use the phrase, um, but, but just for, for heuristic purposes, and then would prefer to... Uh, to, to move on to more particular things, I suppose. Would, would it be fair to say then for our listeners that, say, if you're a member of a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church that holds to you know, the Westminster Confession or the Second London Confession, the 1689 Confession, that if you go there to the section dealing with God, what you're getting is, is really a, a pretty representative chunk of classical theism presented to you? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. The authors of, of those confessions, uh, we could bring up the 39 articles as well. They're certainly carrying forward insights in the doctrine of God that um, that were handed on to them from church fathers, medieval teachers, and in those Reformation documents, there's really not a pushback against uh, earlier accounts of God's attributes or the doctrine of the Trinity. As we know, the focus is on making changes elsewhere, soteriology, eschatology, and so forth. So, yes, you get a, a, a little distillation of so-called classical theism 
in uh, phrases like God is without body parts and passions and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I only ask that question because, as you know, there are some out there who try to claim that classical theism is, sort of, is really sort of Roman Catholic. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to underline the fact that, no, this is this is the Christian heritage, mm-hmm. really, and good Orthodox Protestants. This is this is our tradition. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think it's important to recognize it's not as if the reformers or the early, the early Protestants were simply too busy thinking about other things and never really got around to that. They actually did do substantive work on the doctrine of God and consciously chose to carry forward those insights from earlier theologians. And, and used their language. I, I, I was uh, yeah. talking earlier uh, in the day, uh, I've, I've got a group of men from my church and on Wednesday mornings we meet and we're going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. And when we came to the chapter on uh, what is God, and, and you've already given part of the clause there, you know, is without body parts or passions, you know, I, I kind of showed them what, what the origins of that were is that, you know, the, the, the Westminster divines were not seeking to come up with a new and innovative approach to understanding God. Um, but they were going back to the, um, to the first generations of Christians where those, where those words were, were derived from what they were reading in the scriptures, uh, as a means to kind of put, put language to, to how the Bible was describing, um, God in those ways. And it was interesting because we ended up spending several weeks just on, on that chapter in our, in our small group. Um, and for a lot of these guys, obviously some of them coming from broader evangelical churches, those were all new, not just new words, but new concepts, um, for, for most of the guys. And, and I, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask you or not, but you know, if you, if you were to give a you know a, a contrast between the god that we uh see um being described by the the, the 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 church's earliest theologians you know the god of classical theism if you like um versus the god of 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 broad evangelicalism how do the two differ if that's a fair question yeah i think i think it's a fair question i think it might be helpful to zoom in on a couple of or a few a few defined attributes to to think through that so, for example, um, there would be differences on something like divine immutability uh, for uh, earlier theologians. Um, God doesn't, I'm speaking very broadly, of course, God, God doesn't um, change not only in his essence, but also in his plan for the world. God doesn't change um, his relationship to the world, doesn't have to in order to be adequate to address all the different circumstances of the world. You could think about something like impassibility as well. Um, I've tried to explain in the book that impassibility has nothing to do with God not caring. It's really a focus. It really focuses on God being above being harmed, damaged, deprived of his own well-being by the hands of others. And that's certainly prominent in earlier Christian accounts of God. But I think, at least in many circles today in evangelicalism, you'd have the sense that um, it's important to emphasize that God um, God experiences pain. God, in his very godness, experiences pain just as much as creatures do. That would certainly contrast with earlier views of God and the fathers, medieval teachers, early Protestants. Um, and then also you could consider something like divine simplicity. There are different uh, figures in the world of American evangelicalism that think simplicity ends up creating all kinds of problems that I just don't, I just don't think that it does. Um, and I think that simplicity certainly enriches our understanding of what God is like, but you would have um, prominent authors 
that have shaped the world of evangelicalism. I'm thinking of some, someone like William Lane Craig, for example, or Alvin Plantinga, who would say simplicity is basically nonsense. And um, yeah, I think there are, there are reasons to take those arguments seriously and try to deal with them and remind people, um, whether they're part of American evangelicalism or some other pocket of Christianity, that these earlier accounts of the divine attributes are not only intellectually robust, but spiritually enriching, or at least that's part of how I, I, I see the task at hand for us. Yeah, it was great in in talking with this small group that I meet with. You know, again, these are these are laymen. They are thoughtful laymen. Um, they, they're in this group because they really want to 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 keep learning and growing. But it was great to see lights go on as we talked, for instance, about simplicity and why that's good news for the Christian. It's not mm. just it's not just grist for the intellectual mill that like there's comfort in this comfort in knowing that yeah. that God is irreducible. And so that has implications on how we think about his love, his faithfulness, his holiness. Um, uh, and, yeah. and they were very much blessed by that. You know, it, it was very um, uh, 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 uh salutary for them as they began to see that. Yeah. I've often shared with students that some, something like simplicity has helped me um, settle into, I think settle better into being a reformed Christian. I think in pop versions of Calvinism, sometimes what you get is something like an isolation of divine sovereignty as being the thing to focus on. Um, and that can lead to a view of God that makes it sound like he's capricious or something like that. And simplicity reminds us that you can't, disconnect God's attributes from each other or elevate uh, something like sovereignty above wisdom and goodness and justice. So it's, it's a reminder to us that whatever God, God does, yes, he's sovereign, but it's always going to be characterized by perfect wisdom, goodness, mercy, justice, which is hugely reassuring when we don't understand the reasons why something happens in God's providence to know that it, God's action is always going to be characterized by those things. That's a big comfort to believers. Yeah. And that, I think, brings us, Steve, to, to the issue of Christology, which, of course, is the, the primary concern of your, your book, because you know, intuitively, most people w- might respond and say, well, Jesus, Jesus is God in the flesh. <laughs> the flesh suffers. Jesus, he moves around. He learns stuff. Uh, he undergoes pain on the cross. He talks about his, uh, you know, his father's will. Uh, there are all kinds of things that, that somebody might point to Jesus and say, we got to build our doctrine of God from Jesus. And that seems to, mm. to stand somewhat at odds with the kind of classical theism that you've articulated. Again, I feel somewhat unfair in asking you to give a short answer to, to a, a question that really you've written a whole book on. But uh, the, the question is, you know, how, should, how does classical theism enrich our understanding of the person and work of Christ. It doesn't jeopardize it. It enriches it and deepens it. We, we've had Father Tom Wayne on this program a couple of times talking mm. on these themes. And I always, whenever we have a conversation, they always come away thinking, wow, uh, what that man has just told us has mm. deepened my understanding of Christology. H- how would you say that classical mm. theism, it doesn't impoverish, weaken, or marginalize the historical Jesus Christ. It actually deepens our understanding of his person and work. Yeah, I think it's worth making a couple of observations about how we go about the task of Christology. And then secondly, getting it's also worth it to get into some, some specific points about how uh, this understanding of God enriches our Christology. So I think regarding 
method or how we approach these things, it's, it's good to bear in mind that the Lord purposely gave us a revelation of himself in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. So it is appropriate for God's people to affirm that we understand certain things about what God is like, even as we get to the Gospels and begin reading about Christ, the highest revelation uh, of God in history. And um, then I also think on the back end, it's good to remember that um, once we are there in the Gospels, it's not as if we, we should expect what Jesus reveals about God to somehow go against what's there in the Old Testament. In fact, it, it develop, the, the incarnation develops our understanding of what's there in the Old Testament and reinforces or ought to reinforce um, the high view of God that we get, for example, from uh, Isaiah 40 and other places. Now, getting to some concrete points, I think um, my mind is drawn, for example, to Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, where Jesus came to help the children of Abraham, so he must take on flesh and blood, and he had to be made like us in order to undergo suffering and in order to become a merciful high priest. That's what the author says in, in 2.14 to 18 there. So I think if we follow the logic carefully, that implies that in his divine essence, Jesus was not already undergoing suffering or uh, undergoing change as we do. It's when he takes upon himself the human nature that he has, that then he is uh, in a position to suffer as one of us. So I would actually say a text like Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 implies divine impassibility. I think it gives us a right to say that impassibility is not just philosophical speculation, but a biblical doctrine, a biblical attribute of God. And that helps us uh, understand the significance and the striking nature of the incarnation. It's not more of the same. This is something that is novel. God now has a nature, or God in the person of the Son now has a nature in which he can suffer like us and be our brother in all of that. And it's significant that in that text, uh, the author says Jesus became a merciful high priest. Well, isn't it true that God already is merciful? Yes, of course, in the sense that he inclines to helping the miserable. That, that's at the heart of what mercy means. But there is, there is an important sense in which Jesus becomes merciful, having taken on flesh. And that is because he uh, now has been in a position to actually undergo suffering and to, in a, in a way, allow that to inform his approach to us miserable sinners in our Christian life. So I would say something like impassibility is the necessary backdrop to the incarnation and helps us understand the full significance of it. And furthermore, it reminds us that um, we're not really meant to try to focus on some kind of divine suffering that's, that would be radically unlike ours. The comfort lies, according to Hebrews, in Jesus suffering in a, in a purely human way, in an unalloyed human way, uh, in which he is truly our brother. I think that's, that's very significant spiritually for us. Could go on to another place. I'm thinking, for example, of um, Jesus uh, saying in John 10, 17 and 18, uh, no one takes his life from him. Um, he lays it down from himself. And I think it's important to connect that with the attribute of simplicity, where uh, the son doesn't have his own distinct divine will. He shares the one divine will that he and the Father and the Spirit have together. So he shares one divine freedom, one divine sovereignty. 
And um, that means that it's not as if someone had to boss Jesus around and persuade him to come and to take on flesh and be our savior. In fact, he shares the divine freedom whereby he established a plan in which he would come to take on flesh and, and give his flesh on the cross for our salvation. Uh, I think biblically speaking, that, that goes a long way toward helping us understand the efficacy of Christ's atoning death. But then also on an existential level, it's comforting to know that uh, the God man wasn't made to come and do what he did. He came in the fullness of his own freedom and made that decision with the father and the spirit. So those are a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, inevitably we get asked questions about, um, certain statements that Jesus makes, um, about, uh, th- that would seem to indicate that, uh, Jesus doesn't know certain things that the father knows, um, that he suffers, that he experiences some sort of a, a break and a separation from the father on the cross and, and, and these kinds of things. And, and one of the things I try to explain to, to members of my church is that you do not have to have a seminary degree to have a good working knowledge of, of how to read yeah. those passages where Jesus is speaking or being spoken of um, as it relates to his divine nature. And then those passages where mm-hmm. he is speaking about or from or, or being spoken of as it relates to his human nature. And, and again, one yeah. of the great things that I get to, to do as a pastor is, is see the lights go on for people on, on those things where it immediately then begins to make sense that um, and, and in the incarnation, the incarnation isn't like anything else. You know, as you indicated, it's sort of like the Trinity. There's no good way to illustrate it because it's completely yeah. uh, unique. Um, and, and so we do have to have because of the uniqueness of the incarnation, we do have to have um, a grid by which to kind of say, OK, well, this is Jesus speaking as it relates to his divine nature. And this is Jesus speaking as it relates to his human nature. And and, and, the, and, and the thoughtful layperson is, is fully equipped uh, to, to be able to know yeah. the difference uh, between those things. How, how would you how would you kind of add to that or flesh that out? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's 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 within, um, you know, the, the capabilities of the average um, Christian reader of Scripture to be able to say there's one person here, the person of God, the son or Jesus. But he does have two natures and those two natures are never separated or separable, but they are always still distinct from each other throughout the Lord's incarnate ministry and, and for, um, for all time moving forward. So as long as a person's able to, to bear in mind that Jesus has two distinct natures, they can then step into different biblical texts and say, and ask the question, okay, is this text referring to the person of Christ without, uh, requiring us to distinguish between distinguish explicitly between the two natures here, or is, or is this text speaking, especially of Christ and his divinity or especially of Christ in his humanity. So a person could come to a place like Mark 13, 32, and where Jesus um, indicates that he, he doesn't know the exact time of his return. Person can come to that text and say, okay, wait a minute. I don't have to deny the omniscience of Christ, the divine omniscience of Christ to make sense of the text, because I know he could be, and in fact is speaking about himself with regard to his humanity or his human intellect here. I think that is, that's such a key point, continuing to distinguish between the two natures. Um, it's helpful for the average person reading scripture on his or her own, 
but it's also an important it's an important point that can be set aside or too easily missed even in high level academic discussions where where people do ask questions like okay if jesus is impassable um surely he must not genuinely undergo suffering and as, sim- as simple as it sounds, it's important to, or I should say, it does quite a bit of the heavy lifting just to help people bear in mind, the two natures of Christ remain distinct. The one does not have to become like the other in order for there to still be one person. The focal point of the unity here is the person, and the two natures are free to be radically unlike each other, and that's part of the point of the incarnation. God the Son has a nature now in which he is... Yeah, he has he has uh, capacities and experiences that are radically unlike what is true of the divine nature. Yes, and and, and you know, Carl mentioned uh, some of your previous published works, and now this uh, latest volume. What what what's been so good for me is is how the stuff in these fairly weighty books that you've written have kind of snaked their way into a lot of my preaching and. Uh, just in terms of explaining what Jesus is like in in sermons and in Sunday school classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first four centuries, preaching was filled with this sort of yeah. uh, theologizing, if you like. I mean, the, 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 the early church fathers thought these matters were of utmost importance. And it's tragic if we, yeah. if we lose that. Yeah. As we all know, when we have formal theological training and we have technical concepts and all of that, um, we so often just need to introduce the relevant material without necessarily burdening everyone with the technical concepts right away. So there's so much that can be done in preaching. For example, if, if a person doesn't bring up the, the, the phrase or the term simplicity, immutability, impassibility, hypostatic union, communication of properties, all of that stuff, it's, it's entirely possible still to say things that will resonate deeply with the average Christian even as you even as you often withhold the use of some of the technical concepts and then perhaps for those who are more interested in learning the technical vocabulary and the habits of speaking then there are opportunities to to instill those things in the life of the church but uh, i've i've found it to be really encouraging that that christians can get this stuff and can see why it matters even as we may not require them to use all the language of francis turretin right away or something like that well that is so uh, helpful and again our guest today has been stephen doobie he is a professor of theology at phoenix seminary and as carl mentioned at the introduction um he's he's been producing substantial um work on uh the doctrine of god and now this latest volume uh boring into uh to Christology and the title of this book. And it is a substantial book. This is not a, a daily devotional book. Um, if you're a student, um, I commend this to you. Um, if, if you're a, a, a lay person who loves to read theology and you're up for a challenge, go for it. I, I was reading stuff when I, before I went to seminary that was above my head and I, I benefited en- enormously from it. Um, but this is a serious book. It's a scholarly book. It is an important book. And I, I, I tell you, if you're, if you're headed off to seminary at some point, uh, this is going to end up on some syllabi um, around the, the, the country in, in Christian universities and in seminaries. It's called Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, Biblical Christology in Light of the Doctrine of God. And again, the author is Stephen Doobie. We do commend uh, uh, his work to you. And uh, Stephen, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, if you're a listener, you can um, uh, go to our website, uh, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, if you'd like to enter to win a copy 
of Stephen's uh, book, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism. You can enter to win a copy there. And while you're at our website, if you'd like to, to donate uh, to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to uh, provide uh, good content like this, uh, you can feel free to do that as well. Um, we so much appreciate uh, your time and listening uh, today, and we will look forward to being with you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.